Hello, this is Ashley Chase welcoming you to the Mark Driscoll Podcast. For more content from my dad, Pastor Mark, Senior Pastor here at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona, visit realfaith.com, where you'll find study guides to go along with each sermon series as he preaches verse by verse through books of the Bible, daily devotions, free ebooks, and more. Now grab your Bibles and get ready for today's sermon. One of my favorite things is to take books of the Bible and go through them in a deep way because no matter how much you know, there's always more to learn. And uh, today we're gonna look at this question of uh, globalism. And the question is, what does God say about globalism? And we're gonna ask the question, how come we have nations and why are there languages and where did this all begin? And so the book of Genesis literally means the book of beginnings or origins. And we've seen the beginning of our planet. We've seen the beginning of animal life, plant life. We've seen the first two human beings, Adam and Eve. We've seen the first marriage. Uh, We have seen the first children born. We've seen the first murder. We've seen the first grandkids. We've seen Satan and demons. We've seen culture continue to expand and people become increasingly evil. We've seen God flood the world, start all over again with Noah and his wife and their three kids. We've covered a lot of ground. And today we're gonna ask the question, why are there nations and why are there languages? Because when we reach the point of the storyline of human history in Genesis 10, everybody's in one area. Today we call it the Middle East. In the ancient world, they would have called it the region of Mesopotamia and everybody spoke one language. Well, looking from our perspective, Now we have nations. How did that happen? And people speak different languages. Why did that happen? When it comes to nations, a nation is a group of people that tend to share a culture, usually a language, and shared borders. Uh, This is how it works in uh, my neighborhood, probably yours. Everybody has a fence or a wall. And that's to say, that's yours, this is mine. You stay over there, don't come over here. If you need anything, knock on the front door, don't hop the wall, it's Arizona, I'll shoot you. That's the way it works. And if you're new, write that down. You need to know that that's very important data. And the walls say, no, that's where your family is and that's where my family is. And if we're gonna work together, we need to discuss and agree on that. You can't just come over and invade my house. And so the result is that what we experience personally also happens nationally. You live there, you live there, and nations are like families. Today, there's 193 nations that the United Nations would recognize on planet Earth. And uh, one of the first things we learn when we go to school as a kid is, in addition to your country, here's the globe, there's lots of countries. And in addition to your language, there are innumerable languages. Today, there are roughly 7,000 spoken languages that we are aware of on planet Earth. Of course, there are people groups that we don't know of yet, and they've got languages that we have not encountered yet. And that would include written languages, which are less in number than spoken languages. The top spoken languages on the earth, English, Mandarin, Spanish, French, Arabic, Russian, and Portuguese. And so again, the storyline of Genesis, once we hit the point of Genesis 10, that point is where everyone is in one place speaking one language and then God creates nations and languages. And what we're gonna read in just a moment is a genealogy. So if you woke up today, you're like, I sure hope we read the Hebrew phone book fast. You're in luck, your prayers are answered. And what we saw is Genesis five had a genealogy. Genesis 10 has a genealogy. Genesis one through four was really focused on a man named Adam. Genesis five was 1,656 years. And it talks about all of the descendants of Adam and his sons to get us to Noah. Noah then is the focus and Genesis six through nine. And then we'll get another genealogy to fast forward us to Abraham. You'll meet him next week in Genesis chapters 11 and 12. That being said, as you look at the nations on the earth today, we all come from one of three sons. God flooded the earth, Noah gets off the boat. He's got three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. They then have sons who have sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters. And this leads to the nations of the earth. And so we'll read this in just a moment. I'll read it fast. I don't know how to pronounce all the names because I went to public school. And the key is just read fast and confident. You don't know either. But where this could be a little bit boring, I want you to see it from this perspective. How many of you have done ancestry or genealogy to look at your family? 
This is the history, ancestry, and genealogy of all nations of the earth and all people groups. So if you were to go back far enough, we would find ourselves somewhere in the line of Genesis chapter 10. So we look at three sons fathered all nations. Genesis 10, starting in verse one. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, uh, Ham, Shem, Japheth. Those are his three boys. Now, we looked at the fact last week that uh, Japheth isn't a bad guy. Shem is the guy that Jesus is going to come through. Ham is the really bad guy. Uh, we looked at last week, uh, Noah built a vineyard, made wine, passed out drunk naked on his tent. He had 4th of July party, went a little too far, uh, watching NASCAR at home, got a little out of line. And so then Ham goes in and sees his father. As a result, that family line through Canaan is cursed. So there's sort of the good, the bad, and the ugly here with the three boys. Sons were born to them after the flood. So they're born after sin and judgment. So the sons of Japheth, this is a smaller family line, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Mesek, and Tyrus, the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riftah, and Togarmah, the sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples, so these guys relocate out toward the coastlands, the coastland peoples spread their lands, each with its own language, by their clans, that's culture, and nations. The sons of Ham, these are the bad guys, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabakta, fun to say. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush, gonna tell us a little bit about this next guy, Father Nimrod. Uh, if you were in the, if you were like, I, I need to name my kid, I'm just gonna find a Bible name, pick another one. Uh, <laughs> it's a lot of therapy to undo that. Uh, he was the first man on earth to be a mighty man. So he's a man's man. He's an Alfie, drove a truck, not a Prius, wore boots, not Crocs, nothing bedazzled. He stayed in his gender lane. Good job, Nimrod, good for you. And he ate whatever he could kill, okay? And that's a good idea. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. You're gonna meet that kingdom today. And that's ultimately Babylon, Iraq, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. We're gonna visit that place today and it comes up again in the days of Daniel. Today we know it as Iraq. From that land, he went into Assyria. Some of these nations still appear uh, in politics today and built Nineveh. That is gonna be highlighted later in the book of Jonah. Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Resen between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Egypt, they just escaped. The people who just are reading this book are in the wilderness escaping Egypt. And now they're seeing how these people came into being that lorded over them. Egypt fathered Ludum, Anamim, Lahabim, uh, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came. Those are bad guys are gonna show up in the rest of the Old Testament. And Kaphtorim, Canaan, bad guy, he's cursed we saw last week, fathered Sidon, his firstborn in Heth, and the Jebusites and the Amorites, the, Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zamorites, and the Hamathites. As they get back into the promised land, they're venturing from the wilderness to the promised land. These are the nations that will surround and oppose them, so God is forewarning them. This is like a father looking at children and saying, these are people that are safe. These are people we don't know. And these people are dangerous. You need to have discernment in your relationships. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. You'll see that this is the ungodly line and it's the largest. Sometimes the worst people have the most kids. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar, as far as Gaza, you still hear of these places today, and in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah, that's coming up in a few weeks, Admah and Zeboim, as far as Lashah. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations, to Shem. Shem is the guy through whom Jesus is gonna come. In Luke chapter three, verse 36, it says that Jesus descends from this family line of Shem. Also fathered the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arpachshad. That kid in kindergarten had to be terrible. What's your name? I have no idea. It has a lot of A's. I'll, I'll learn how to spell it in high school. Aren't you glad you didn't have that? On the back of your jersey, they're like, we can't get it all on there. So 
Lud and Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. His brother's name was Joktan. Joktan, we're almost done. Uh, fathered Almadad, Shelah, Hazarmaveth. Public school, Whew, that was rough. Jerah, Hadarim, Uzel, won't say that, sounds naughty. Obel, Imiel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobed. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. We'll see how they came into being in just a moment. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So the storyline is this. God had Adam, Eve, and then they had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel. God brought along Seth to replace the murdered Abel. Population increases. Everybody is only bad and evil. God floods everything in the days of Noah. They get off the boat. It's Noah, his wife, three sons, two, their wives as well. And here everyone descends from them and we get nations and languages and that sets up the rest of the story. What this does, this fulfills the promise that God gave to Adam and Eve and then repeated to Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives to be fruitful, multiply, increase in number and fill the earth. That here is being fulfilled. And the point is, every one of you comes from one of these three men. Every one of us comes from these three men. And ultimately we all come from their father, Noah. This was uh, commented upon by the Apostle Paul in Acts 17, 26. He says, quote, he made from one man, that is Noah, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwellings. What it says is everyone comes from Noah and all the nations come from his sons and God determined where and when you would be born. You were not accidentally born into a nation, a language and a people group. You were providentially chosen by God for the time and place in which you live. What I love as well is God knows every nation and every person by name. See, we read that and we think this is boring because our name's not on there. <laughs> but it isn't it nice to know that God knows your name. God knows your name. God knows your name and he loves you. And what I love is this, we read this and we say, God, why, why do you say these names? It bores us. He's like, cause I love people by name. I call people by name. I save people by name. I relate to people by name. And he's the same God who knows your name. That's encouraging to us. In addition, it says, and it reveals to us that all nations and peoples are ruled by one God. These sons are gonna have descendants who then form nations, who then create demonic counterfeit false religions, especially those from the line of Ham through Canaan. But ultimately over all people's times and places is one God. And this is where we talk about the throne of Jesus Christ being over all peoples, times, places, and nations. And the God here who is ruling over all the nations, and Genesis 10 is called the table or tablet of the nations, is Jesus Christ that ultimately he is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the ruler over all nations. And when Jesus says, um, all authority has been given unto me, go into all the nations and to preach, he is demonstrating that he is the God who rules over the nations. In addition, this explains to the people who originally received Genesis, they were held in bondage and slavery in Egypt for about 400 years. God delivered them and then they spent some 40 years wandering in the wilderness as they were returning to the promised land. And as they receive this from Moses, they are being informed that when they arrive at the promised land, these other people groups have now inhabited or invaded what is to be their land. And they'll be surrounded by some terrible pagan neighbors who want to invade and overtake and destroy them. So it is forewarning to them. In addition, we see here that people carry forth generational patterns. I'll probably get into this a little bit more in ensuing weeks. But what we are finding here is for, for example, the line of Canaan, pretty much they're all ungodly. They do horrible things. They worship demon gods. They set up high places, counterfeit religions. Uh, they sacrifice their own children to demon gods. One generation to the next is just bad to worse. And the point is this, we tend to carry forth the habits and patterns of previous generations. Before you were born, people made decisions that are affecting your life. 
And you and I are making decisions that are affecting the lives of people that are not yet born. That we tend to think that we're autonomous individuals, we're not, we're part of family systems and generational legacies. And that can be for good or evil. And the themes of blessing and cursing carry this forth in Genesis. It speaks of blessing in Genesis some 80 times more than any other book of the Bible. Some lines walk with God and they're blessed, others walk against God and they're cursed. And what they're finding today, even with brain science and trauma therapy, there is such a thing as uh, generational trauma. That you can carry trauma for generations, that you can carry patterns of thinking and behaving. You also can take just habits and cultural norms in addition to demonic spirits that transmit, that transfer rather from one generation to another. And the point is this, it can be a, to a totally evil line for generations and nothing changes until somebody meets the God of the Bible. And then they get delivered from their family, adopted into the family of God, and they start a brand new family line. That's the encouragement. If you come from a broken, traumatized, really uh, sad or wicked family line, the good news is God can adopt you and you can start a new family. Amen. And that's what God does next week, starting with Abraham and also Sarah. So it sets up the stage for that kind of deliverance. In addition, uh, Jesus comes through Shem. And what I love about this, this is not the only list of names that the Bible tells us about. It says that the God who rules and reigns over all the nations is coming back to judge all the nations and his name is Jesus Christ. And what I love is this is in the first book of the Bible. We have a list of names. In the last book of the Bible, Revelation, there is an additional list of names. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And guess what? Our names are written in there. If you belong to Jesus, if you love Jesus, if Jesus loves you, your name is on a different list. It's the guest list to the kingdom of God. And you may be a little bored with this list, but I assure you, you will not be bored with that list. Be like, am I on here? Oh, oh, it's my last name alphabetical. Oh, okay, good. Oh, there I am, there I am. Are my friends on here? Yes, are my enemies? Ah, they are. So, you know, you, you, uh, that ultimately there's another list. And if you know Jesus, you're on that list. And if you don't know Jesus, we want you to be on that list. So we want you to give yourself and give your sin to Jesus as your savior and make that great list in the end. So what it sets up now, it says there was uh, one people in one place with one language that led to peoples and many nations speaking many languages. And the question is, well, what happened to create and cause that? And we find that in the next section on the city of Babylon and the tower of Babel. When it comes to the Tower of Babel, sometimes people focus too much on the tower and they miss the city. Genesis has some big furniture. We saw an ark. The point of the ark was the flood. We see a tower, but the point of the tower is the city. The furniture is big and real, but don't overlook the big idea. Babel was the tower, Babylon was the city. So Genesis 11, one through four, now the whole earth had one language, we're gonna to return to that momentarily in the same words. And as people migrated from the East, in the Bible to travel East is to travel further away from God. So in Genesis three, when Adam sinned, he went East. Genesis four, when Cain murdered, he went East. The further East you go, the further away you're getting from God. They found a plain, so not a high place, but a plain, a flat piece of land in the desert, you may, you may have seen something like that here in Arizona. It's funny, people will be like Camelback Mountain. It's like, that's not a mountain. If you can climb there in flip-flops, that's not a mountain. We live on a plain in the land of Shinar. That is modern day Iraq, it's ancient Babylon. And settled there. And they said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. So these are mud bricks that are baked. And they had brick for stone and bitumen, which is basically asphalt. That's basically what it is. And they said, come let us build ourselves, a lot of us and our, not God, but us, ourselves a city and a tower. The city is Babylon, the tower is the tower of Babel with its top in the heavens. And let us, now they're using the same language that God used for creation. God said, let us make man in our image and likeness. They said, no, no, let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. So what we see here is that there is evolution, but the evolution is external, it's not internal. 
This is where the powerful, pervasive cultural myth of evolution finds its allure. People are making technological progress, but not moral progress. They can build cities, but they don't love God in those cities. And so the point is this, a lot of things can improve out here, but unless something improves in here, all we find is better ways to do evil out here. So now we have technology and we can weaponize and traumatize and bludgeonize one another more efficiently than ever. That there is progress, but unless we meet the Lord and he gives us a new heart and a new nature and new desires, all we use is we use new technology to do greater evil. And so that is what is happening here, just like the days of Noah. And here it says that they are going to build an entire city out of mud brick. And to this day, it's kind of curious because 30% of people on planet earth still live in dwellings built out of mud or mud brick. Here in the Southwest, we call it Adobe. And so this is ancient technology and technology is increasing and cities are being formed and fashioned. And they're going to build ultimately in the middle of nowhere, a city that is going to be known as Babylon. A city is marked by two things, density and diversity. There are more people packed together for more cultural groupings and backgrounds, which is why you can be more annoyed. And if you just moved here from California, welcome, you know exactly what this is like. More people packed together and different kinds of people who don't understand one another, that's urbanization, that's what qualifies and quantifies as a city. And they're seeking to build a city. And the location is Shinar, which again is modern day Iraq. It's the same place that some years later, um, what would happen is that the Babylonians would invade Jerusalem. They would lay siege to God's city. They would kill and enslave God's people. They would take them as prisoners of war and captive to Babylon. And this included Daniel in the book of Daniel. And it was in that place that Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter one, verse two, he built a high tower just like the tower of Babel so that everyone could worship him as a counterfeit God. The point is this, we keep seeing from one generation to the next, the same things happening. Why? Well, because people change, but demons don't. And nations change, but demons don't. And demons will work through one person or one government. And when that person or government transitions, the government then is just overtaken by the same demon. And so is the leader. Because Genesis friends is not just about what happened, it's about what always happens. And because ultimately the same spirits at work in the days of Genesis are at work in our own day. And in addition, what we see here then is language. And this is the introduction of the significance of language. It says they all had one language and spoke the same words. Language is crucial. The Bible tells us in Genesis one and two, when we started the story, that God made us in his image and likeness. He spoke creation into existence. It says that God said, God said, God said, and it was so, and it was so, and it was so. So our God works through his word. And then God creates us to speak to us and to hear from us that God made us to be revelation receivers, revelation interpreters, and then also to communicate in response to God. And this is how we relate to God. Unlike lower animal life forms, we can communicate and we have language. And what this means is that language is significant because it helps us to interpret reality. Words give meaning to experience. Many of us will go through the same experience, but we will give different meaning to our experience because we will define those experiences by different words. I'll give you an example. I recently had a conversation with somebody who's been through horrible suffering and evil and trauma. And so they went through that experience, but now they need to define it and put it into language to categorize it and to process it. And I asked them, I said, what do you think happened? They said, I think God hates me and he's attacked me and he's abandoned me. I said, well, there is also Satan and maybe Satan is attacking you and maybe Satan is seeking to destroy you and maybe he's also lying to you to deceive you. I said, which of those do you think that it is? They said, I hadn't really thought that maybe Satan was involved. You know, the words are really important because if you think that God hates you, you're going to run from him. If you think that Satan is attacking you, you're going to run to him. You can go through an experience, but how you interpret it and the language you give to it to provide meaning and processing for it is very significant. It's not just what you go through, it's how you think about it and how you 
understand and define and interpret your experience. And language provides that. That being said, uh, Jesus Christ also comes as the word of God. And Christians have always been uh, people of the book. We're actually called people of the word. We're people who not only like the word, we like words. We're the people that when we pull into a place, we wanna translate God's word into your language. And if your language is not a written language, then Bible interpreters will come in and help form and fashion a written language for you so that we could translate the word of God for you so that God could speak to you. And we believe that our relationship with God is tethered together by words, that he speaks to us through his word and we speak to him through prayer and through singing. And, and singing is how we just pray together. It's how we give words to our experience of the living God. Now, that being said, it says in the days of Babel, there was only one language and everybody spoke the same words. Now, I know as I get through the book of Genesis, many of you will wonder, are these historical events or mythical events? Did these things actually occur? Or are these just fables and folklores and myths that are created to try and give some meaning to life? And what I like to keep doing throughout Genesis is provide as much um, evidence as I can to help you believe that the word of God is true. And today I've got two of those. I wanna talk about the city of Babylon and the Tower of Babel, but first I wanna talk about the languages. It does say that everybody originally had one language. Now what's interesting is um, the linguists have come to the same conclusion, the non-Christian linguists. So my oldest daughter, our oldest daughter, it's Grace's daughter too, but my oldest daughter, Ashley, um, she got her master's degree at the Barrett Honors College at Arizona State University. And she really loves languages. So she studied languages and she loves the nations and she loves missions and she loves helping me get Bible teaching out in different languages. And so she was in a class and there was about 400 students in a linguistics class. And the professor said, everybody originally started with the same language. There was only one. And what we now know is the languages spread out across the earth, they share a common language of ancestry. And we know that because so many of their words are similar for things in numbers. Well, my daughter raised her hand. She's like, you know, the Bible says that. And they all laughed. She's my daughter. So she decided to fight again. So then she did a full presentation on Genesis 11, saying that the linguists had come to the same conclusion as the Bible. Let me share that with you. She's got this on realfaith.com for the live stream this week, but I'll summarize it for you. And the question is, were, was there one language in the days of Babel? So we just looked at Genesis uh, chapter 11, verse one. It says, the whole earth had one language in the same words. Here's the summation. Linguists believe that there was an ancient spoken, not written language from the time period of Babel in the region of Babylon that lo and behold, suddenly disappeared, but gave birth to the known earthly languages. These language families can be broken into groupings, Anatolian, Indo-Iranian, Greek, Italic, Celtic, Germanic, Armenian, Tokarian, Balto-Slavic, Albanian, and a group of unaffiliated languages. There has been an ongoing effort to reconstruct this first language by deduction from non-Christian scholars. It actually exists online, you can hear people reading in what they believe is the reconstituted first language. Archeology span magazine, I'm trying to appeal to non-Christian sources to appeal to non-Christian people to believe the Bible. It says by the 19th century, linguists knew that all modern Indo-European languages descended from a single tongue called, isn't that interesting? We believe in tongues. Descended from a single tongue called proto Indo-European or Pi. It was spoken by a people who lived from roughly 4,500 to 2,500 BC and left no written text. <laughs> How many of you, you're like, my brain is coming out my ears. My mind just melted. What they say is, oh my goodness, we studied it and there was one language. It's like, we could have saved you a lot of work, but thanks for coming to the right conclusion. And it's interesting that we all started speaking the same language and today we don't know what that language is. It seems to have disappeared. Now, I don't know for sure, but when the apostle Paul says that there is an angelic language of heaven and that sometimes when we have this prayer language of what the Bible calls tongues, which is just the Greek word for language, 
it may mean that this original language is now the language of heaven. And it was the language of heaven and earth until the days of Babel. And then God reserved that language for heaven. And for some people, when they are filled with the spirit and they pray in tongues, they may be speaking in that language. I don't know, but it's a curiosity. The point is this, eventually science catches up with the Bible and eventually archeology span confirms the Bible. The point is this, that the Bible is not an old book, it's an eternal book. That means it's not without its timeliness, it's ever timely. Amen. And so what we're seeing here is what God says is what history confirms. I tell you that because I want you to believe in the word of God. I want you to love the word of God. I want you to study the word of God. And I want you to wrestle with the word of God because if you wanna hear a word from God, you need to open the word of God. So in addition to the languages, it says that there was a tower that they were building, the Tower of Babel. And we'll deal with that and look at that in a moment. The Tower of Babel would have been perhaps the world's first skyscraper. And ultimately what they wanna do, they wanna be like God. Uh, the first temptation that Satan brought to Adam and Eve in Genesis three is you can be like God. Well, then the people decide, well, we can be like God. God lives up there and he rules and reigns and he gets glory and prominence and preeminence and he looks down on us. We'll build a high place, we'll be like him. We'll sit up there and rule and reign. So it is seeking to repeat the fall of Genesis three. The one thing that Adam and Eve did is the one thing that all people here are now going to do. In addition, uh, one of the benefits of building a high place was very practical. In the ancient world, oftentimes cities were built on high places or hills. Some years ago, uh, we took our five kids, Greece, Israel, Turkey. We went to the places of the seven churches of Revelation and elsewhere. And I can confirm that many of the cities were built on the high places because it was of a strategic advantage. You could see your enemies coming. In addition, in a battle, you would have strategic position. For those of you that were in the military, do you wanna fight uphill or downhill? You wanna fight downhill. And if you can have a high place from which your archers can function as snipers, and you can see your enemies coming and you can warn your citizenry, you're in a strategic advantage and position. So what they're seeking to do here, they're seeking to be like God and rule over control other people. In addition, it is really curious, as I said, that 1,500 years later in the days of Daniel, it was in Shinar, mentioned also in Daniel chapter one, verse two, that Nebuchadnezzar, filled by the spirit that is working in the days of Babylon, Babylon, comes as the king of Babylon, and he builds another high point, and he says, everybody bow down and worship me. The point is this, Genesis isn't about what just happened, but what always happens. And so what we see here, if I had to summarize what is happening, um, this is the first human attempt at globalism. Globalism is the belief that the world has pains, problems, and perils. We know as Bible-believing Christians that it's because creation has been cursed and we inherit a sin nature. Those who do not believe the Bible and know the Lord think that we are good and can get better that the problems that we have can be solved if we all come together in unity. So the assumption is, if we could just pull all of our resources and our military might and our technology and our skills and our capacities and our abilities, if we could just unite and all work together, we could bring heaven to earth. We don't need God to make heaven, we can make heaven. We can make a fully secular society that makes all of our dreams come true and our longings realized. This is an attempt to have heaven on earth without God. What will happen next week when you come back, um, we're gonna meet Abraham. And the point is this, from Adam to Abraham, sin occurs and God allows patiently every generation to try and fix the sin problem. Here, it's the last attempt at a human solution for the sin problem, and that is globalism. And it is unity. It's the same spirit that works in every age. And, and what we tell particularly young people is, you're gonna change the world and all you need to be is a good global citizen. You need to just embrace the whole world and see yourself first and foremost as a global citizen. Sometimes this will be done in the name of world peace, other times to overtake or overcome a pandemic, or sometimes to save the environment there will be some sort of global cataclysmic fear that is put into people that will cause them to then try and work toward a globalist solution 
to really what is a God-sized problem. And what we're seeing here is that everything that God creates, Satan seeks to counterfeit. And this is the counterfeit of the kingdom of God. So let me share this with you. So God creates a city, it's called the New Jerusalem. Satan counterfeits with a city called Babylon. God creates a city and it's made by him. Satan counterfeits with a city that is made by us. The point of God's city is to make God's name great. The point of this city is to make our name great. What happens with the new Jerusalem, God comes down humbly. With Babylon, we go up proudly. We will make a tower and we will go up. In the kingdom of God, God saves and provides for us. In the counterfeit kingdom, we save and provide for ourselves. And ultimately the kingdom and the centerpiece therein, the new Jerusalem is ruled by Christ. And the world, the centerpiece of which is Babylon is ruled by the antichrist. So let me say this, um, this spirit works in every age. It's at work in our own day. We're seeing it right now. What's really curious is, uh, let, me, let me talk a little bit about politics for a moment. Let me preface it. And if you're like, don't talk about politics. No, no, the word of God speaks to everything. It's not like there are things in the Bible that belong to God and things that don't belong to God. And God stays in his lane and only speaks to the things that belong to him. To be Lord over all means he speaks regarding all. And personally, I don't want any part of my life that God doesn't talk to me about. Hey God, what do you want me to do? He's like, I have no idea. Oh gosh, okay. This is not gonna end well. And the point is this, our church is not about being political, but we are about being biblical. And as you study the word of God, there are issues that come against the word of God and the word of God helps us to interpret reality and define appropriate response. So that being said, when it comes to how we are to interact with the world, we are supposed to think biblically. Now, let me say this. I didn't know that the time that I would hit this text, that we would be on the precipice of perhaps a war in Europe. We have a war, but we may have a larger war. I put my preaching schedule together about a year in advance and I pray and I fast and I hike in the woods and I'm like, Lord, what do you want me to teach? And last year it was Romans and this year it was Genesis. And so I laid out Genesis. My preaching schedule is usually architected a year in advance because I'm weird and organized. <laughs> and people always be like, you can't put your preaching schedule together a year in advance. You need to stay current and relevant. And my point is I have found, this is now my 26th year as a senior pastor, preaching through books of the Bible. Every time that I go through a book of the Bible, it just seems to perfectly fit whatever we happen to be dealing with. Because God's word is not old, it's timeless. So it's always timely. And we don't need to make God's word relevant. We need to show the relevance of God's word. So what we see here is there's a group of people that say, uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna rule over everybody uh, through military might and power, and we're gonna make our language and our name great. Sounds like the news right now, amen? Uh, Russia's gonna be great and everybody's gonna speak Russian. We're gonna make ourselves great and our language great. It's very interesting that the spirit that we are seeing at work in geopolitical events is the same spirit of Babylon that was at work in the days of Genesis. So there are three ways to view politics. And let me say this, I am not about candidates, I'm about a king. And I ultimately don't believe that the solution is political. I believe that politics can hold back the flood of evil and give us freedom to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But ultimately my goal is not to get you to go right or left, but to get you to go up to the Lord who is over it all and speaks regarding it all. When it comes to how we see ourselves and we operate in the world, this can be on a macro scale nationally or a micro scale personally. If I could simplify it, there's only really three options. Isolationism, nationalism, globalism. Isolationism is we have nothing to do with anyone else. We retreat and keep to ourselves. Some individual Christians do this. They're the off the gritters. They are the people who have gotten rid of all technology. They're wearing tinfoil hats and right now packing, you know, meal kits underground. Okay, those people, okay? And don't worry, they're not angry. They're not watching. Okay, they're fine. So, but, but on a global scale, on a national scale, you can also be an isolationist. The example of this today would be North Korea. It's called a hermit kingdom. You're like, well, what's North Korea like? Nobody knows. They, they, they don't communicate out and they don't allow any communication in. 
To have isolationism is really just to keep to yourself. And usually it's controlled by some sort of counterfeit demon God. North Korea really is a cult ruled by a demonic leader. And the only thing we know about them is, uh, hey, we're working on our nukes, leave us alone. That's isolationism. Then there is nationalism. And nationalism is, I love my country and I want the peace, prosperity, the flourishing and well-being of our nation. I want our nation to be the best version of our nation. And I wish well for your nation. You love your nation, you love your people, you, you love your culture and community. And everyone love their nation and serve their nation. And nations should work together when it mutually benefits them. But otherwise you do your thing and we'll do our thing. Now, nationalism can take a nefarious turn because if we lose sight of the kingdom of God over the nation, then all of a sudden politics becomes religion. Campaigning becomes evangelism. Uh, political rallies become worship events and candidates become saviors. So you need to be careful that everything that God creates, Satan counterfeits. But it is good to love your nation and to seek the peace and prosperity and well-being of your nation. And then thirdly, there is globalism. And that is we see ourselves primarily as a global citizen. Our primary allegiance is not to our nation, but to our planet. And these are people who think that if we could just do what they tried to do in Babylon, but if we could do it more efficiently and effectively, we would see the results more magnificently. And it's if we just had one national currency, if we had one global currency, if we had one global language, if we, if we all just came together, we could solve all the problems on the earth. And it's really, really interesting that this globalistic experiment has been tried and failed now for a few decades. And then the question becomes, did the Tower of Babel truly exist? Did it exist? Because what Babel was, it was the first human attempt at what? Globalism. And what did God say? No. Now, those who would say they are progressive would say, you know what, we're good in getting better. And I think if we just all came together, things would be better. And God says, no, actually that is the problem. Because if power is centralized, if someone is in control, then you know for a fact that Satan will try and get the antichrist to be in the seat of power and authority. Until Christ comes, there is no one fit to rule and reign over all. Because we're all sinners by nature and choice. And Satan will most assuredly seek to get his demon-possessed leader in the position of highest authority. That's the way that it works. And so what God says is, no, I'm gonna scatter you and I'm gonna confuse your languages because if you all come together, you will usher in hell, not heaven, the antichrist, not Christ, a cursing, not a blessing. That's right. That's right. So this is, this is to inform us for how we see human history. And this leads to the question, because then immediately when we get into this kind of significant deep end of the pool contemplation, certain people will say, well, it's just a myth. It didn't really happen. I mean, of course there wasn't a thing like a big tower. So the question then is, did the Tower of Babel really exist? Yeah. The Tower of Babel was in ancient city of Babylon, Kermit de Iraq, and part of ancient Mesopotamia. In nearby Egypt, there was a famous ancient architect named Imhotep. He's such a legend that we even know of him to this day. If you've seen that sort of cheesy series of mummy movies, and if you haven't, don't waste the time. But if you have, we forgive you. But when, when they would go into a pyramid, Imhotep would come and haunt them. He was the zombie. He's still part of our cultural folklore. We know who he is, he's a legend. He built the legendary Step Pyramid. In 1899, the German archeologist Robert Caldaway began an 18 year excavation of the mud brick ancient ruins that are widely believed to be the Ziggurat Tower of Babel. Pyramids are of one size and structure, I'll show it in a moment. Those were prevalent in Egypt and nearby Mesopotamia, the structures were different, they were called the Ziggurat. Uh, the bitumen, also known as asphalt in our day, used for mortar, mentioned in Genesis 11.3, was also excavated in the digging at Babylon. The base of the Tower of Babel, they have uncovered it. It's roughly 300 feet by 300 feet. It was over 300 feet high and torn down by Alexander the Great in 325 BC. 
Unlike traditional Egyptian pyramids, Mesopotamian ziggurats were step towers that could be built much higher. It is estimated that 17 million mud bricks were used for the seven tiers, which engineers and architects have determined would be possible to successfully build. Archeologists have also discovered an additional 32 ancient ziggurats in Iraq and Iran. Let me explain this and let me show this. Originally, the criticism was, well, those primitive people certainly could not have built that. C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery. They're stupid, we're smart. Have you met us? <laughs> not all of us are that smart and not all of them were that stupid. And as they built the pyramids in Egypt, some thought, well, it could not have been built uh, as it says in Genesis, because the pyramids that were built were oftentimes hollow in the center. You couldn't build that larger, that wide, just the engineering, the load bearing capacity is not possible. But that was in Egypt and nearby Mesopotamia, Imhotep created the first step pyramid. And what these are, these are uh, not hollow, but filled center points. And it is layers on top of one another. And it has stairs and or ramps. And they now say, you can build that. And it actually would work and it would hold the load. Uh, in addition, uh, we know probably what that looked like. So uh, that is Robert Caldaway. He is on the left and that is him digging ancient Babylon for 18 years. And uh, he's the guy with the beard. So you always know the guy who's helping the word of God is the guy with the beard. So he's on the left. And then the next picture uh, on the upper and left, you will see a pyramid. And then on the lower and right, you will see a ziggurat. It is believed that the Tower of Babel would have been built based upon the prototype of Emotep to the lower right. And that's the great ziggurat of Ur. So they believe that is the Tower of Babel. And the point is you would go from one level to another. And then what would happen is at the very, very top, the king would sit, he would offer sacrifices. Everyone could see him high and exalted in all of his glory. And they could worship and praise him as the God of their kingdom. The entire thing is a counterfeit of the kingdom of God where Jesus Christ sits high and exalted on a throne. Everything that God creates, Satan counterfeits. The spirit of Babylon is always at work seeking to get someone who is evil to the highest point of leadership and influence. This can be technologically, economically, politically, or militarily. He doesn't care as long as he rules and reigns. What God does then is he scatters the people and he confuses the languages and he does so out of love for us. And so we now read the last section here in Genesis 11 that we'll deal with today. Nations and languages protect people from each other. See, we're not just saved from Satan's sin, death, hell, and the wrath of God, we're saved from each other. If God didn't restrain us, we would destroy one another. Genesis 11, five through nine, the Lord came down. Now that's the converse, the people go up and the Lord comes down because the people are proud and God is humble. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people, unified. They have one language. They're gonna be very efficient and effective. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Oh my gosh, we're looking here at complete and total globalism and the ushering into the Antichrist and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come let us, that's probably an allusion to God and the angels and the other divine beings, the heavenly host, let us go down there and confuse their languages uh, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth and they left off building the city, didn't get finished. Therefore, its name was called Babel. In ancient Akkadian, that means gateway to the gods. They thought they were bringing hell up and gonna live by demonic power. In the ancient Hebrew, it means confusion. And in our day, we understand babbling to mean you say a lot of words, I don't know what you're talking about. That might be my spiritual gift. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Here's the big idea, friends. Unified unbelievers are more powerful than divided believers. God looks and he says, they are one mind, they are one vision, they are one language, they're being powered by one spirit, this is not good because they are sinful and evil. And let me say this, we live in a world where the spirit of Babylon wants to do everything that it can to divide the people of God. Now, I'm not saying that Christians don't have distinctions, differentiations, but we shouldn't have divisions. We can have debates without even having divisions. 
I don't see, you know, the LGBTQ community attacking one another, but Christians feel free to. Even when a terrorist attack hits, I don't find a Muslim imam getting on the television saying that was wrong. But what I will find is continually, unceasingly, tragically, Christians just attacking and vilifying one another in the name of accountability, which is really just slander. So you and I need to be careful. You need to know that we are now a minority group. We are outliers. We are freaks and oddballs. We are are not the people who are widely regarded or widely respected. And ultimately God's people need to hang together. Otherwise we're all gonna hang together. And what it's saying here is that divided believers are less powerful than unified believers. And a few things I just wanna make note of here. Um, God here scatters them. In the original Hebrew, it's the same language that was used of a defeated military that would be scattered. And previously, the sinners didn't get a scattering, they got a flooding. So God here is being very nice. God said, I'm not gonna flood the earth again, but these people are just as bad as the people who died in the flood. The difference is rather than being flooded, they are scattered. And this is God's love and grace because when evil people are together, they're going to just multiply their evil. So God scatters them. Think of it like a fire where all the logs burn hot together. If you scatter them, eventually it cools down. This is literally the flames of hell coming together as all the people are stacked together and they are sort of mutually encouraging one another toward evil and destruction. And God says, we're gonna scatter them or we're gonna cool this down. What's curious as well, it's a similar language that many years later, Jesus' own mother Mary would use. When she was told that she would give birth to the savior, the the promise through uh, Eve and Seth and ultimately Abraham to the nations that she would give birth to the savior of the world, she sings a song, she's filled with the spirit and she responds in song. And she says in Luke 151, that he has scattered the proud. I wonder if she was thinking of these moments. This is where we see the first scattering and he's scattering the proud. And Mary who is humble begins to worship in that moment. Well, in addition, something that we learned therein is that ever since the days of Babel, we have been seeking to work around this scattering of people into nations and this confusing of people by languages. To this day in Christianity, this is why we have missions. People go from one nation to another nation and they learn the language of the people to tell them about the love of Jesus. This is why we have Bible translation and other translation for Christian resources. So even at Real Faith, we do Portuguese, we do Spanish. This is why. It's trying to get God's word to people in a language that they can understand. And what happens because of Babel being scattered and separated by language, There are constantly attempts by people, particularly nations to work together to go back to the globalistic agenda of the days of Babylon. And what happens is nations will come together either for mutual benefit or common enemy. We both get this or we both oppose them. You're seeing some of that happen geopolitically as we speak. In post-World War II, this led to the Axis powers of Italy, Germany, and Japan, and the Allied powers of the Soviet Union, the United States, the British Empire, Poland, France, and the UK. At times, you will see this for security and safety. This is why we have the United Nations. See, we wouldn't have these things unless you had Genesis 10 and 11. We have the UN Security Council. We have NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. We also see regional alliances like the European Union and the North American Free Trade Agreement. And I believe we're heading into another Cold War where the world is going to be subdivided by blocks. I believe that's where we're going to find ourselves. In addition, what we're now seeing, and this will be controversial at every point in the sermon, I say something controversial, we've officially arrived, that the entire globalist agenda being driven by progressives is now being dominated and driven by the tech industry. And what we are seeing is that technology is now able to translate so that people who previously could not communicate now can. This is including of artificial intelligence and even language apps, one of the most popular of which is called Babel. In addition, what you are seeing is that through the internet, we are now trying to create a global communication channel that is separated from governments so that we could overcome God's confusing of languages in the days of Babel. 
Well, what we're seeing even this week, for example, in the Ukraine um, or in Russia, is that the governments are throttling certain information or shutting down the internet. So now what we're working at is links up in space that are transnational, that can communicate across national boundaries and no longer be controlled by governments, which sounds great until you realize one person is in charge of that. And now they control the communication for every human being on planet earth. In addition, we have social media platforms seeking to eliminate and eradicate national boundaries so that people could communicate and speak freely. That's a good thing if you're giving out Bible teaching, that's a bad thing if you're promulgating fake news, which travels six times faster than the truth on the internet. Uh, old preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, he said, uh, a lie can get halfway around the world before the truth can get its boots on that we live in a day of misinformation and disinformation. Every day, the goal is to just appeal to your base instinct of anger to cause you to constantly be in a fearful, responsive state of anger and the whole globe sort of pulsating together. That's, right. That's the world in which we live, which is why we have mental health and people are sad and things are not going well. In addition, we now have things like um, the metaverse which is an attempt to create an unseen realm that is a counterfeit of the kingdom of God, where people can enter in regardless of nation. And when Mark Zuckerberg says, ultimately we're all going to live in the multiverse, I'll just tell Mark, not all of us Marks will even be there. That at the end of the day, I don't wanna enter into a parallel counterfeit spiritual, it's not just technological, it's spiritual reality. And ultimately what you're seeing is the entire tech industry is how do we get people to communicate and overcome Babel? How do we get people to occupy a parallel universe much like Babel? In addition, how do we create a currency that is transnational? This is the whole push in our day toward cryptocurrency. How do we get finances to move regardless of governments? All of this is a driving force and all of this nonsense with space exploration, let's all go live up there. Well, what you're creating is now a new culture that is not regarding of nations. You need to know that much of what is on the progressive end of technology and innovation is ultimately fighting against God's grace to us in the days of Babel saying scattering and language confusing that people are evil and if they all come together, it doesn't usher in the second coming of Christ until it previously ushers in the Antichrist. Just think of it, friends. If one person can control all internet access, if one person can control all economic transfer, regardless of nation, if one person can't control a virtual reality existence, that's a lot of power for a human being. And unless your name is Jesus, you're probably going to abuse it. And what happens is people tend to give up freedom in times of uncertainty or fear or anxiety or threat. That's right. We tend to give it up and we never get it back. So in our day, we now have attempts to overcome, you know, this global curse with globalism. We even have things like the World Health Organization that says, well, governments rule and reign, but now the doctors who won't, weren't voted for, they get to overtake and overrun governments and we'll use the tech platforms to communicate, to push people to think globally, not nationally. And ultimately what we're setting in place is a new reality. What do you think? Yeah, so, um, so let me say this, the same spirit the spirit of Babylon, it was in, you'll see it show up again in Sodom and Gomorrah, it was in Nazi Germany, it's in North Korea, it's in Iran, it runs drug cartels, human trafficking, political campaigns, social media platforms, news outlets, entertainment, the porn industry and social media. And what we're dealing with friends is our war is not just against flesh and blood, but powers, principalities and spirits. And ultimately this concept of Babylon is not just a place, but it's a demonic spirit that works in a place and doesn't limit itself to that place. So in the days of Genesis, the spirit of Babylon was at work in Shinar. Sometime later, the spirit of Babylon was literally at work in the city of Babylon. As I told you in the book of Daniel, the Babylonians invade Jerusalem. They lay siege to the temple. They take Daniel and his friends POW and they do what the spirit of Babylon tries to do in every age. 
close the church, castrate the men, brainwash the children, and then enforce demonic spirituality and worship of a false God, usually in a political position of power. That's exactly what happened in the days of Daniel. And it's what happens in every day when the spirit of Babylon shows up. Now we know that the spirit of Babylon is not just a place, but is a prince of darkness because he's also mentioned not just, or it is also mentioned not just in the first book of the Bible, but the last book of the Bible. Genesis talks about Babylon. The Bible talks a lot about Babylon. It is synonymous with the world. It's living hell up, not heaven down. And then Babylon is mentioned in the book of Revelation. And what it says is that the spirit of of, of Babylon is in every generation working toward globalism, bringing all people and things and resources together with the promise of security and prosperity for all, which doesn't come to pass because Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And he promises that which only Jesus can deliver. And so through fear and intimidation and through threat and war and famine, and the Bible speaks of these things, it says that ultimately the spirit of Babylon will at some point bring together globalism and a globalistic government. And the one who then occupies that seat of power is not Christ, but antichrist, which means against and in place of. And then it seems like all hope is lost and the planet is doomed because we have handed the keys to the enemy. And then Revelation says this about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Revelation 14, eight, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of her passion of sexual immorality. That ultimately the gateway into the demonic is just addiction and pleasure and comfort. It says as well in Revelation 17, five and six, Babylon the great, the mother of prostitutes, of the earth's abominations, drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, seeking to encourage sin and to destroy anyone who would preach repentance of sin instead of tolerance for sin. Revelation 18:2, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons and a haunt for every unclean spirit. What it says is that in every age, the spirit of Babylon will be working toward globalism to usher in the second coming, or I should say the coming of the Antichrist, which ultimately then is overtaken by the second coming of Jesus Christ. And ultimately Jesus does return and he conquers sin and death and he rules over the nations. You're gonna read this at the end of Genesis in 49, that he will rule the nations with an iron scepter as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So God's answer to Babel is Jesus Christ. And ultimately we don't go up, but our God comes down. We don't go up to a high place. Our Jesus comes from the highest place and he comes to the most lowly place. He goes from a throne in the unseen realm to a manger in a rural town. And the only time that we see Jesus lifted to a high place is when he is hung on a cross in our place for our sins. And he literally is physically between us and God. And he dies in our place for our sins. He not only forgives our sins, he releases us from demonic bondage and ownership to Satan. And he transfers our citizenship from Babylon to the kingdom of God and the new Jerusalem that is coming down out of heaven, not made by human hands. Jesus then died and then he rose to conquer Satan, sin, death, hell, the wrath of God. And he released the demonic curse that was against all of his people and he returned to heaven. And what he said before he returned to heaven was this. He said, you will be my witnesses to all the nations of the earth. And then as Jesus went up, the Holy Spirit came down. He came down at a feast called Pentecost. Pentecost, it says in Acts chapter two is when people from many nations were all together. And they couldn't communicate because they had different languages. But then tongues like fire rested above them and they could each hear the goodness, the greatness, the glory of Jesus in their own language. And the Holy Spirit overcomes Babel. And the point is this, there can be no unity until we're unified around Jesus Christ. And there's no need to all speak the same language until we're all singing his praises. And Pentecost is the beginning of the kingdom of God. And it is the overtaking of the limitation that God put on human history in the days of Babel. And then the question is, well, what do we do in the meantime? Because we're in the time between the times. 
We're in the time between the second coming of Jesus to crush the Antichrist, to lift the curse and to reconcile the nations. And we are between that time and the resurrection of Jesus when he conquered sin and death and sent the spirit. In the meantime, we are to worship him. And I'll close with this from Revelation 7, 9. And it shows us what is happening right now in the unseen realm. And it's what we will be doing in the seen realm. It says this in Revelation 7. It says, I looked, heaven was opened up. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes, all peoples, all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, worshiping Jesus Christ as King of Kings, Lord of Lords. The longing for unity is found around Jesus Christ. The longing for a king and a kingdom is found in Jesus Christ. The longing for peace and prosperity is found around Jesus Christ. And when all the nations and all the languages encircle the throne of Jesus Christ, which is the highest point in all of eternity and all of history, ultimately then alone can we have the life that we hope for because without Jesus, there is no life whatsoever. So in the meantime, we're gonna worship him. All right, so I'm gonna pray and we're gonna worship him. How's that? Father God, thank you for an opportunity to teach the word of God. And God, I pray that it would go forth in boldness and power. I pray against the enemy of servants, their works and effects. I pray against the throttling of counterculture and cancel culture. I pray against God every attempt that would seek to forbid or to dissuade the forward progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only hope for every people, every language, every nation, every epoch in human history. And Jesus, we know that right now you're being worshiped. And we know that right now the spirit of Babylon is trying to establish a counterfeit kingdom culture on the earth, the kingdom of the world, the culture of hell. So we come now to invite the kingdom and the Holy Spirit. And we wanna live your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus, as you're being worshiped right now in heaven, and we want you to be worshiped on earth. And we come together with people from multiple nations, multiple tribes, multiple backgrounds, multiple cultures, and we come to sing your praises and we do so in Jesus' good name, amen. We hope you enjoyed today's sermon. If you want to be a part of getting more Bible teaching out across the world, visit realfaith.com slash donate. And for more content like this, visit realfaith.com. Thanks for listening. And remember, it's all about Jesus.